So we were hoping when he disappeared that we would hear something, that he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine, and, you know, just needed to go out and clear my head. Um, but he was never heard from again. So that was the weird thing is that he, he never got in touch with any friends or family after that occurrence. Welcome to episode 24 of Thin Air Podcast. Thin Air Podcast is dedicated to investigating missing persons cases from around the world. Each episode features in-depth research, interviews, and narration in order to tell as completely as possible the story of the missing person. Over the past 23 episodes, we've grown and evolved so much, and we couldn't have done it without the amazing support and feedback we get from our listeners. If you would like to find a way to support Thin Air Podcast, we have a few things you could do to help out. The best thing you could do is check out one of our sponsors' offers on our website, thinairpodcast.com, or support us via Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. For a small monthly donation, you can gain access to various perks, including something we're really excited about. For $5 a month, you can gain access to new mini-episodes we produce in between our regularly scheduled releases. If you want to support us non-monetarily, you can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or write us a review on iTunes. Again, thank you so much for your continued support. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club is the first digital brand for your smile, using technology to help you avoid office visits and cut costs. Get 50% off your evaluation by visiting smiledirectclub.com and entering the promo code THINAIR at checkout. Once again, that's smiledirectclub.com and the promo code is THINAIR. Before we get started, we have to give a warning in today's episode. We just wanted to emphasize that the views expressed by our guests in this episode are not those of either myself or Jordan or anyone else who helps produce Thin Air podcast. As always, we like to reserve judgment, but also believe that everyone should be free to express their ideas and opinions. Most of the time when starting an episode, we focus on the individual, the person who's gone missing. This time, however, I want to start with a place. I wanted to start with this place because unlike stories we've done in the past, this place acts almost as an additional character in the disappearance of 26-year-old James Rowe, who went missing in July 2004. It is an important place to start because the city where James lived tells us a lot about the type of person James was and how he lived his life. Crestone, Colorado has an estimated population of around 150 people who are contently nestled in its 420 square miles. Crestone is located in southern Colorado at the base of a series of mountains collectively known as, you probably guessed it, the Crestones. But it's not the size or the location of Crestone that it's known for. It's the inhabitants who reside there. For those who I talked to and from what I gathered about Crestone online, it could be described in many ways as a spiritual center in which all faiths and forms of spirituality are celebrated. Given its small population, it has a disproportionate number of religious centers, including a creative harmonics center, a Baptist church, a Zen center, a temple of consciousness, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries, and something called the Fifth Dimensional Living Institute for Spiritual Education, just to name a few. Today, Crestone is home to its citizens and a legend to those who live elsewhere. It was that legend that drew James Rowe to Crestone to begin with.
What is it about Crestone? I guess saying it's off the charts is a really big one. It's, it's really separate from the rest of the regular society and what's going on in mainstream and whatnot. It's kind of doing its own thing. Um, there's no through roads. So you got to drive 20 miles out of your way. That ends in a 14,000-foot mountain. Um, it's gorgeous country. It's like totally raw and touched. Um, a long time ago, a lady gave away the land. She had bought a bunch of the mining lots that were all around, and she gave it away free to any religious group that had an unbroken lineage. So it couldn't be a religious group that that had started off of an original religion, but it could be a original religion, could come there and build a temple for free. And so at this point, I believe there's 18 different temples from all around the world, right here on the mountain. And the part that really attracted me was that it was a huge place for people trying to get off grid and build their own home and get more into the rootsy, like self-sustainable type deal instead of kind of playing the money game out in the world or whatnot. And so there was a lot of support for that. And that was kind of always my dream. So that really attracted me to it as well. That is Jeremiah Bays, probably the closest person to James when he disappeared in July of 2004. Like James, Jeremiah had been drawn to Crestone for many of the same reasons, but Crestone isn't where they first met. Their first encounter was over 200 miles away in Boulder. When they reunite later in Crestone, well, that's serendipity. Uh, it was kind of funny, kind of synchronistic. Um, I was hitching through Boulder and he was hitching through Boulder, and we both met up at a coffee shop, and we met each other and really clicked and connected and talked a bunch, and then kind of split ways and hadn't really even mentioned where we were going. And I ended up coming to Crestone and saw him like two days later here in Crestone, and he was moving here as well. And so then it just kind of took off from there. So did you, when you met him at the coffee shop, was that the first, like, had you arranged to meet him, or did you, was it happenstance? No, I just randomly ran into him, oh. and, and, yeah, and I'm not even, like, a very big social person, it's not, usually, I'm usually the person sitting in the background or whatever. Right, right. But somehow we ended up connecting and talking, like, the whole time. I was kind of, like, knowing each other for a long time, right off the bat, kind of feel to it. What What were some of the things that sort of, like, drew you to him or, like, made that sort of connection? Uh, for me, it was just his personality. I mean, he's by far, hands down, probably one of the most sweetest, grounded, down-to-earth people I'd ever met. Really easy to talk to. That really helps me, you know, with, with the whole, like, insecurities and social atmospheres or whatever that I got going. But, uh, yes, I felt really comfortable with him. And, and yeah, he's really funny right up my alley as far as sense of humors go. This was a description of James that we heard echoed by his older sister, Laura. I am Laura Foreman, and I am sister to missing person James Brian Rowe. So it's very easygoing, very friendly, um, loved nature. He was born in Wyoming, and we lived in Montana, Idaho, Oregon, um, Vermont. And so we spent a lot of time in the outdoors. Nature was very important to him, as it was my family, and I think he, he was into holistic-type um, things you know, natural foods. He was raw food, a raw foodist for a while, which he tried to convince me of. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. But um, so he was into alternative things that way, but he had never gone to like a personal growth thing. He did go, if you've heard of Burning Man out west. So he used to go to that and that's just how he was. And he loved to travel. He would love to just pick up and kind of travel around. It's clear that James's early life set the stage for the vagabond lifestyle he would adopt in the future. The kind of lifestyle that attracted him to a place like Crestone and to a friendship with Jeremiah. Living in such a small community, the two quickly developed a deep connection. How did your relationship from there sort of evolve or, or what sort of became of the friendship between the two of you? At first we just hook up and chat at the local coffee shop here. It's like a small one-block town in the, in the middle of the mountains and mostly filled with, um, I don't know, 
alternative hippie type folk and spiritual folk and things like that. It's kind of like one of those kind of towns. And then, you know, everybody gets together at the coffee shop and chats and stuff. And, and then we kind of just started hiking and hanging out. And I had a dog and he had a dog. And and they become became like best friends. And he scored a uh, a really good house-eating gig taking care of this little farm with animals and a big garden and stuff like that and invited me to come out and stay and so I did and so I went out there and stayed there for a while then we became like best friends both new arrivals to Crestone and looking for a way to sustain their way of life James and Jeremiah were eager to find their place in the community when a chance opportunity came upon them and then the next step was uh, we were sitting in the coffee shop and somebody came over and said there was this big meeting about some folks getting together and and renting this building in the middle of town and starting a co-op and wanted to know if we wanted to, to get involved or hear about it. And we were, were stoked on it, so we went over and ended up uh, sticking with it and became uh, part of the, the starters or the founders of the business. It was... Uh, Earth Star Cooperative, and it was like a, a restaurant ran by, um, there was probably 10 of us in the beginning that were running it and owning it, and basically each of us did a little different thing each day, so one night would be like Joe Mama's Italian night, the other time would be Adam's Pizza and a movie night, um, uh, Nick and Alicia were doing uh, Sunday brunch, all-you-can-eat buffet, um, me and James were doing Friday night raw food cuisine. Uh, we were both really into the health food kick, and so we started doing gourmet four-course raw food dinners. And that's how they lived, day in, day out. Eventually, James moves in with a husband and wife named Adam and Joe. Jeremiah moves on to their property shortly after James. It's not too long after Jeremiah moved in with James that James disappeared, so I asked Jeremiah, had he noticed any sort of changes or shifts in appearance or demeanor before James went missing? Yeah, it was huge. I, uh, I ended up, I, I did a, this whole curriculum called the Landmark Forum, and it's like a three-day course that you do, and uh, live with other people and a, and a speaker doing like a seminar for like 16 hours a day each day. And then, um, and then it's a three-section thing. Most people just do the first one, and it's kind of set up like it's guaranteed to create like a, a what's a good way to say it? Like a kind of like a waking up or a, a, a realization of things in a different way than you ever have. A lot of people describe it as like taking a hit of LSD, but without any drugs. Um, it's definitely short-lived and temporary only lasts for a couple days that you have this like really inspiring feeling and new insight on things around you and how things work and then it kind of fades away or whatever but I had done the course and I I had Adam go and do the course because I was stoked on it and he went and did the course and then we both just talked James up until he eventually went and did the course too. It was during this experience at the Landmark Forum that James calls his sister Laura for the last time. My brother called me on the weekend of July 24th and 25th, and I don't remember which day it was, but he was living in Colorado and he gave me a call. I was living in Massachusetts at the time, and he said that he was at a um, personal growth weekend called Landmark Forum, and he um, was very excited about it, and had said some odd things to me. He basically said, you know, I know you've been searching and this is the answer to all of your questions. Um, You need to find one to attend with your husband in um, Boston. And um, this just amazing. He was just kind of over the top overjoyed that he found this. And I was a little concerned and I asked him if this was a religious organization or what was going on, what was it about? And he, um, he said, oh, no, um, there are people from all different backgrounds here and beliefs, and we're basically kind of delving into our past and, and sharing things, and it's just awesome. And then um, so he went from super 
excited to really sad, and he started crying. And I've never heard my brother like this with these moods. And um, he started crying and said, I feel like this is the first real conversation we've ever had. Um, And he mentioned some events from our childhood, so I know it brought up a lot of things in in his mind. Um, We moved a lot growing up, and that was very stressful. And um, we had some issues, just family dysfunction, which a lot of families have these days. But all, all of this he had never really processed or dealt with, and it was all coming out based on this weekend. And um, so I was really concerned about him. And I said, um, let's touch base in a couple days. You know, please stay safe and I love you. And um, that was the last time I spoke to my brother. When James returned from the seminar, he began an unexpected transformation, both physically and mentally as described by both Jeremiah and Laura. And when he came back from the course, he was very much like that, that whole way I tried to describe the, the experience you get from the course, um, and was really excited and, and on fire about it for the, the first day and ended up taking all of his piercings out and shaved his dreads. He said he was having difficulty um, differentiating between reality and illusion. Those were his words. And he had also, um, at the time of the conference, he had shoulder-length dreadlocks, and he also has facial piercings. He has a nose ring, and he has gauged ears. He had shaved his head and taken out all of his piercings as well. So that was strange for him to do. And, um, and then the next couple of days, he started to kind of pick up this energy, kind of a little bit on the, like, uh, really confused or manic about it, like having a hard time grounding out or figuring out how he fit into everything or uh, the way he kind of put it to me when I was sitting talking to him was that he didn't know how to fake it anymore or just like sit and, and bullshit with somebody about whatever or, um, and was trying that was having a hard time figuring out how to carry on or, or do those kind of things and um, but it wasn't really like it wasn't potent enough to be like, oh, you know, something's wrong here or anything like that. It was just, you know, seeing somebody struggling with, you know, things that a lot of people in Crestone struggle with, just a a big reason why a lot of people end up coming there. You know, it's definitely in the middle of nowhere and not in the big social hub or whatnot. Um, And then, yeah, I'd say it was about a week after the course is when he ended up disappearing. So I, I feel like there was a huge noticeable shift in him uh, all the way leading up to the day that he disappeared. In your experience with the Landmark Forum or with your friends who have also participated, is that something, is James' behavior something you've seen in your other friends that have done this? Or was this something that was kind of unique to James's experience? I've never seen it. Uh, since then, his parents have told me when they've done research on it that it's happened before. And they definitely managed to dig up some dirt on it. But I, I looked into it, too, and didn't really find, you know, I didn't really find any basis in any of it. Um, but most of the people who do it are your square everyday people and it's definitely marketed towards that angle like it's random to see you know somebody like us in there um and no i you know every one of our experiences was awesome and great and and if anything we wish that we could have held on to that feeling longer to be honest i had never heard of landmark before researching this case and i didn't really have any idea of who they are or what they stand for Their website describes their service as, quote, an international personal and professional growth, training, and development company with a range of offerings that are innovative, effective, and immediately relevant, end quote. I wanted to know more and hear firsthand what an experience at a landmark forum might be like, what James might have seen and heard in Denver that weekend in 2004. Jordan caught up with two friends who have attended Landmark Forums in the past with the hope that a little bit of perspective might help us understand what James experienced that weekend. The first woman you'll hear speak is Margaret, and the second woman, her name is Sherry. 
I want to just give you a tiny bit, like a two seconds of background about sure. me. Yeah. Um, I actually grew up in a tiny town in Colorado. <laughs> and so it was just funny, the premise of this um, podcast, because I was like, oh, I know that town. I grew up in a very similar town. So one of the things for me going into Landmark is that I was exposed to and it was culturally relevant in the way that I grew up and the town I was in to just like explore what it means to be a human. And this is Sherry. First of all, I did it twice. I did the Landmark Forum the first time with Margaret and then I did it again recently this year because you can review the program. You can go back and do it again. The first time I did it, you know, I was I was thinking about all of the stuff that you know, you get to think about, you know, just your relationships with people and um, the way you react to certain situations. And you start to just kind of have these conversations where you discover things like that that's so interesting, just kind of philosophically. And and the other thing, I think the thing I was going to say that's kind of critical to keep in mind is it is something that you pay for. It's something that if you want to do it, it's an it's just a, a product or a service that you can buy. And then you go participate in this the same way you'd participate in any other kind of, you know, workshop or education or school um, of some sort. So it's not something where, um, I guess to juxtapose it with like a religion, it's not something where you have all these, you now go to a free weekly thing. You know what I mean? Like now we all get together on Sunday. There's nothing like that. I've read that during the seminars, they have you call people. So like people in your life, I think I read there was, they kind of say like, you know, call someone that maybe you feel like you need to talk to. Did either of you experience this? Did this happen for you? And if so, what are those phone calls like? So uh, this is Margaret. Yeah, well, you have the opportunity to call people. You know, you, you're, so you're sitting in this conversation and you're talking about like your lens, which is so perfect because like if you imagine you have this lens, right? you don't even have to imagine it, you know, you got it. Um, or this voice in your head that's telling you, this is how it is. And, oh, look at that. And it like forms all these opinions all the time about things. One of the places that you have a lot of opinions is just a human or your parents. Like, I mean, I have tons of opinions about my parents. And so one of the opportunities to call someone is you, you distinguish all these, all these things about your lens and all of that. And then you start talking about your parents and then you have an opportunity to go and call your parents. And um, I went and called my dad and I got to have such a cool conversation with him about my mom passing away. Like I just had all of this stuff that I just thought was the way it was. And I never asked him how it was for him. Like never, just never occurred to me. And so, so that was one person that I got a call and have a really interesting and illuminating conversation. So for you, it was, it was pretty emotional. Yeah, I um it was emotional and but not like emotional like suppressing emotions or resisting emotions like don't feel that way. Don't be this way. Nothing like that. It was like it was like freeing. It was like I got to put down a backpack of emotions. The story that Margaret tells reminds me a lot of James and the experience and feelings he might have been going through as he returned from his landmark forum experience in Denver. For an extended cut of our interview with Sherry and Margaret about their landmark experience, tune in to our mini-episode available next week to our Patreon donors. After the break, hear what Landmark has to say about James Rowe, their forum, and the safeguards they've put into place to protect themselves and their participants. Stay with us. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club is the first digital brand for your smile, letting you avoid office visits and cut the cost by up to 70%, and many dental plans reimburse you for an additional savings. Most invisible aligner brands cost $5,000. Smile Direct Club aligners are a single payment of $1,700. Lab costs are waived. 
or use their easy payment plan, SmilePay. SmileDirect Club uses 3D printing and thermoforming to custom make invisible aligners that straighten and brighten your smile. Children age 12 and over can participate in the SmileDirect Club evaluation. Treatment time averages six months, but can range anywhere from three to 10 months. The first step in the process is receiving your very first at-home impression kit, designed so that you can easily make impressions of your top and bottom teeth for your future aligners. Jordan helped me as I made impressions of my teeth and as I embarked on my new smile. So let's see. So I just got their package and nicely labeled and I open it up and the first thing that's inside is uh, an instruction booklet and a Called cute little sticker guide. an impression guide okay so the first thing we've got to do is mix the mold that's gonna make your impression okay okay so you need your gloves okay I've got my gloves the gray putty with the purple putty until they're one solid color once you begin mixing you have to work fast and then immediately press the mold in your mouth okay once you mix them together, it's 60 seconds. So I got to roll it into a ball within 20 seconds. Okay. And then it's got to be in this hot dog thing. And you grab one of those trays for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm I got to put it. I'm the timer ready. Okay. You know, this might be best to do with like a friend or a loved one. Or a co-podcaster. Or perhaps a co-podcaster. It might even bring you closer together. Which is what we need. Uh, once the, wait. Hurry, we have <laughs> Mix your tray, inspect it quickly, then place the tray in your mouth. Use your fingers to press the tray onto your teeth. Gently bite down huh? and stop once your teeth lightly hit the tray. Huh. Pull your lip over the tray and hold the tray in place for three and a half minutes. So I'm gonna start my timer right now. Are you ready? Uh -huh. Okay. So it's easy to use. Straightforward. I mean, were, was it comfortable? Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So easy to use, comfortable. Um, everything is like, even fr from the beginning, the, the, from the first step to the end, everything is really well explained. I'm also a huge fan of like design and layout, and I really yeah. feel like the packaging and the instructions were all very clear and simple. concise and simple and straightforward. Yeah, I agree. You can get started with an at-home impression for 50% off $95. That's only $47.50 when you go to smiledirectclub.com and use the code THINAIR. It's covered by our smile guarantee, so if our aligners aren't a good fit for you, you get your money back. Get 50% off your $95 evaluation fee by visiting smiledirectclub.com and use the code THINAIR at checkout. Not available in North Carolina. Now, back to the show. What do you know about Landmark Education? Well, I did some research after this happened, and we actually got phone calls from their legal department after James disappeared, um, telling us that he had signed off on a psychological waiver of some kind, stating that he had no mental illness and he was emotionally and mentally capable of, of going through this process. And so I think they were concerned that we would take legal action because of the timing of his disappearance and the way he was acting was directly after this weekend. Um, so I had some, done some research, and my understanding is it stems from EST, which was um, a program in the 70s, which some people had some issues with. And um, I have actually friends who have gone through Landmark Forum, and um, they didn't have terrible things to say about it, but they did say that it's very intensive. They put you in a room, and um, they encourage you not to leave, and um, it was I, I have a problem with it, obviously, because it affected my brother so deeply. And um, he was not diagnosed with any mental illness prior to this, or, you know, obviously we don't know after, but um, we believe that he might have had a nervous breakdown of some kind based on what he went through this weekend. So you kind of just answered it, but have you at all in your life or growing up with him witnessed any kind of sort of uh, mental instability, if you will? Well, I'll be honest with you, he did have some addiction issues in high school, and he ended up going through recovery. Um, he, I'm four years older than he is, so I was off to college when he was kind of getting better from that. 
Um, so he did have some instability regarding that. Um, never any mental illness, never any um, reason to be diagnosed with anything. It was just this propensity toward um, addiction that he had dealt with. But um, he was, our understanding, completely clean when he was in Colorado. He was very involved with the natural foods and um, seemed to be at a very good place in his life. Shortly after James Rowe returned to Crestone, after a weekend workshop at a landmark forum in Denver, Colorado, he began exhibiting strange and erratic behavior. However, I do want to emphasize that there's no evidence to suggest that his behavior was in any way caused by his experience at the Landmark Forum. Curious to hear from someone within Landmark, we reached out to them regarding two fairly straightforward and general questions, not even specifically relating to James Rowe or his disappearance. After a few weeks of waiting, we finally received a written statement from Landmark, much of which I'm going to read to you now. As you know, we're a small, independently produced and published podcast. When we heard back from Landmark, their official statement made sure to mention that they had alerted their legal counsel about our podcast and the story we were covering. This made us wary to share with you our reaction to Landmark's statement. Landmark writes, quote, If you do discuss Mr. Rowe's participation in our seminar in any way as having possibly had any negative impact on his mental state, something that experts have concluded is not possible, we request and expect you to share the conclusions of leading experts who have independently observed our program. They continue, Numerous Numerous facts about Mr. Rowe's mental health issues and hallucinogenic drug use have come to light since his tragic disappearance over 13 years ago. His disappearance is unrelated to his brief participation in one of our seminars, a course that has been confirmed to be safe and effective by top mental health experts. We extend our sympathies to Mr. Rowe's family. As stated above, Given the seriousness of the topic you appear to be considering, should you discuss any possible connection between Landmark's program and Mr. Rowe's disappearance, we request that you share verbatim the following independent facts with your listeners. You asked, is Landmark aware of any of the negative impacts their services, in particular their forums, have had on the mental state of the participants? Response. Numerous independent experts have observed and studied the Landmark Forum and conclude that the course is safe, effective, and has no negative impacts on the mental state of any of its participants. These include highly regarded psychologists from around the world, including three former chief executive officers of the American Psychological Association all of whom found the course to be safe. Among these is the highly respected expert and former chief executive officer of the American Psychological Association, Dr. Raymond Fowler, who said from both his own direct observation of the course and from reviewing reports of other psychologists on his own behalf and not on behalf of any organization, quote, in my opinion, nothing in the landmark forums I attended, either in its content or in the way it was conducted, could be considered harmful to participants. End quote. Their statement continues with two more experts weighing in Dr. Charles Watson, AM, Executive Dean of Health Sciences at Curtin University, and cognitive science expert Dr. Christopher Was both approving and supporting the safety and effectiveness of the program. In response to our second question, what steps does Landmark take to ensure that participants in a fragile state, be it from a history of mental illness, substance abuse, or otherwise, 
are made fully and explicitly aware of the potential negative impacts the forum may have on those with similar conditions. They responded as follows, quote, The landmark forum has no negative impacts on the mental state of the participants. The course has been proved safe and effective by preeminent experts in the mental health field. However, Landmark takes the added step of informing all people who register into their courses, including the Landmark Forum, that if they are not well or if they have concerns about their well-being, they should not participate. Not only does Landmark communicate this in writing, but every person who participates in the Landmark Forum is required to agree that they have read and will comply with the provided information. If you have any history of mental illness or emotional problems, personally or in your immediate family, whether temporary, occasional, or intermittent, and whether treated or not, or have concerns about your ability to handle stress, our advisors strongly recommend that you do not participate in the program. If you are uncertain about whether this applies to you, we advise you to discuss this with a mental health professional before participating in the program. In addition, each person who registers into Landmark Forum is required to agree to and sign the following statement. I acknowledge that I have read, understand, and agree to comply with the notice of important information and health warnings. A similar statement was agreed to by all participants in 2004 when James participated in the course. The reason Landmark takes these added steps is not because the program is harmful but rather because when an individual is dealing with a mental health issue, we understand that even ordinary daily events can be challenging. Landmark goes out of its way to be supportive of such people, to make an informed choice about participating." End quote. We would like to know what you think about Landmark's statement. Go online and share your opinions on Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag JamesRowMissing. Regardless of what triggered James's emotional transformation, whether it be a revelation he had while visiting Denver or just one of those ordinary daily events as suggested by Landmark, the fact remains that he was not the same person that Laura or Jeremiah had known in the days after he returned to Crestone. And w when he did, like when he shaved his head and took out his piercings, and, and did you did you ask him sort of what his motivations were for doing that, or, or did he ever offer you an explanation for his actions? Yeah, it was the whole, you know, it was kind of based off of the kick that the whole ego and identity was bullshit, and and he didn't want to support it anymore and he'd been creating this whole identity around himself in order to like fit into the world and and he didn't feel like there was a need for that anymore and that was basically the basis of his struggle that i caught from him from the few days before he ended up disappearing was trying to figure out how to fit back into this world where we all kind of put on this front with each other and 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 nobody's really speaking like heart to heart, so to speak, or or what's really going on inside, or I don't know. It's hard to put into words. Then, on July 30th, five days after James returns to Crestone, he drives his car 17 miles outside of town to a city called Moffat. According to various reports, he left his dog, Piglet, in his car and walked 17 miles back to Crestone. He walked into a shop owned by his friend Adam, who he mentioned earlier, and who James had been staying with. Jeremiah explains the rest. He ended up driving his car out to Moffat, which is like 17 miles away, and then left his car and all of his stuff and walked back to town, and then went up to Adam's place, and then, um, 
and then talked to Adam and kind of communicated the same thing that he was kind of struggling with things in his head and and uh and Adam talked to him for a minute but he was in the middle of working with somebody and so he ended up going back to work and and James ended up walking away and we live like just out of town there up on the mountain and so if you turn left you'd go down into town and if you turn right you go right up into the wilderness and the mountain and he hung a right and that was the last time anybody saw him. We found out months later from the guy who was there with Adam and it kind of tweaked us out a little bit because we were, we were kind of upset that this guy never said anything before and and this guy was kind of shady too like we didn't I don't know but he ended up saying that he gave James a ride that day and that he gave him and that James wanted to go to the trailhead and he gave him a ride up to the trailhead and so and then dropped him off and then James must have walked back down to Adams is like one of the first places that you come to walking back down from the trailhead and so he must have came to Adams from there and then ended up heading back up that way. But that guy was there. The reason we kind of were a little pissed off about it was because he was standing right there and he never mentioned to Adam that he just took him up there or that James had asked to be given a ride up to the trailhead or anything like that. And he didn't come out with it until like maybe six months later. And that's probably the fishiest part of the whole thing. And Adam's got feelings about that. Interesting. So can you tell me about how you learned of James's disappearance? None of us knew until the sheriff came into town talking about his car being out there. And then we started kind of tracing his steps back to that day with Adam and figured out that that's what had happened and that was the same day. There's definitely one side where, where an interpretation is that he he lost it and he went kind of crazy. Um, but if you knew him really well, I don't, I don't think, I, I think that you would say that he was always kind of that way, like, um, like not afraid to shout in the middle of nowhere or do something that most people would be afraid of what people would think of you. Like he, he didn't have any of those kind of, um, walls around him or whatever. And so, um, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I definitely know that he was dealing with things. I definitely know from what he shared with me from his past that he's, that, like I said, that veil between worlds is, was really thin for him. When I spoke to his sister, she said that he had left his dog at the car when he drove up, which seems strange to her because he loved her so much that it didn't make sense to her that why he would leave uh, the dog there in with the Jeep. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe it is. Um, I feel like if that was the case, then I would have received the dog from the sheriff, and I definitely didn't receive the dog from the sheriff. How did you end up in possession of Piglet? Um, I believe it was somebody that knew him that had her and ended up giving her to me after he disappeared. So... Where's Piglet now? It was about two or three months later. She ended up splitting on me. Probably going looking for James, and I never found her again. As days went by, there was no sign of James. Searches were conducted of the immediate area and in the Crestone Mountains, but no body or belongings of James surfaced anywhere besides the Jeep he left parked. 17 miles away. So you learn about James's disappearance and then what kind of happens after that? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, was there some sort of concerted effort to look for James by law enforcement or? They do a search and rescue on the mountain, which happened pretty quick after we found out that that's what, that he was gone and that his car was found and that was the last that he was seen. And so a search and rescue was done and nothing turned up, but it's like, I mean, it's epic wilderness up there, 14,000 foot mountain, and it's just nonstop ravines and canyons and places that somebody could fall and you would never find them again. So it's almost like it's a roll of the dice on whether you're gonna find somebody when you go up there looking or not. As far as like that being any kind of, you know, they didn't find anybody, but that doesn't really 
say that that's not where he's at or anything like that. No sign of James, body or otherwise, would ever turn up. Over the years, though, various sightings of James have been reported throughout Colorado. All have been checked out by a private investigator hired by the Roe family, and they have confirmed the sightings are not James. However, there is one sighting that seemed hopeful that was reported on Thanksgiving Day in 2008. Yeah, there was one that we're pretty sure was him, and that was 2008 on Thanksgiving at a truck stop, and that was in um, in Georgia. Oh wow! So quite quite a ways away. Yeah, yeah. How did you get word of this sighting, or or why do you feel so confident in that it was him? Well, we. Um, we actually got a call from the Crestone County Sheriff, the um, sheriff who had been working on James's case. What happened was a truck driver had um, had seen him and with a girl and a dog, which would be very much like him to have another dog, um, hitchhiking on Thanksgiving Day. And he was a little suspicious thinking, you know, here's a young kid. He was um, asking for money and hitchhiking. And um, so this truck driver went on the FBI missing persons website and actually found his picture and called the the number associated with his information on that website, which was the the county sheriff in Colorado. And then they called my mom and um, and he said his name was James, the truck driver. And he said that he had lived in Colorado for a time and... um, Everything seemed to fit. And so what happened after that? Well, the unfortunate thing was that, so this guy called the sheriff and James was nowhere to be found. He either was successful with his hitchhiking or moved on. So there were, there were no leads to follow up on. And it was very, very frustrating. So um, the, the man had said that James had a tattoo on his neck which James did not have before, so that may be a new identifier if this was actually him. Um, And it was some kind of vine or fire design on his neck. He mentioned maybe traveling to Florida or California, but there was no additional information. So it was very frustrating that there was nothing to be done at that point. To this day, James Rowe remains missing. James has brown hair, possibly shaven or in dreads, and blue hazel eyes. James had gauged ears and a pierced nose and lip, although he had taken out all of his piercings prior to his disappearance. Besides the possibility that he has a vine or fire tattoo on his neck, He has no other tattoos or distinguishing characteristics. If you have any information regarding the disappearance or whereabouts of James Rowe, we encourage you to call the Sawatch County Sheriff's Department, or you are free to contact us at thinairpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll pass along your tip to the correct authorities. How has this affected your mom in ways that you've noticed? It's really hard on her. And as a mother myself, I can't imagine what it's like to go through losing your child. Um, It's really challenging around holidays and around James's birthday and the anniversary of his um, missing. It's really hard. So she'll call and sometimes things will will come up and she'll say, you know, I talked to the sheriff. Um, She likes to touch base with them at least once a year, even if nothing's really happening. And I know she's experienced a lot of frustration with um, just not having answers. And at one point she had said she felt like we should um, mourn James as if he were gone. We should have a funeral, a service, something so that she could get closure. And she changed her mind after that, after she said that, but um, 
it's just really hard because there absolutely is no closure. And she has a lot of his pictures um, at her house and had like a little table set up with candles and his picture and stuff. Um, and I think it it's hard for her to talk about him, but she likes to remember James and to talk about good times. And um, it's just really hard. Does she or you believe that he's still alive out there? I know that I do. Um, I don't know if my mom does. I, you know, she has hope. And that's one thing that we've clung to is hope that we'll have answers someday. And that's really all we can hope for. Then it was kind of a lot. And, and you know, and now, you know, time kind of heals everything. And since then, I've married and built my own house and have two children and and uh, you know and so it, it's kind of faded and now I just have these really beautiful memories of them and, and not a lot of struggle but then there was definitely a lot of struggle there was definitely a lot of wanting to hold on to him and find him somehow and a lot of time sitting in these towns and camping out where they heard that there was sightings and never follow, finding any leads or anything from the calls they got. I went and checked out every lead they got and went to the town and squatted and that's just kind of how I am. I'm not afraid to go and camp out and sit somewhere and so that's what I did on probably four of the different leads. Um, So I was really trying to, you know, find him but, you know, over time and that not leading anywhere and nothing, you know, a huge period of time going by where nothing was heard or there wasn't any more sights. I kind of just settled into that, you know, feeling like he's he's not here anymore and has moved on. We would like to thank Laura Foreman and Jeremiah Bays for sharing their story with us this episode. We'd also like to thank both Sherry and Margaret for talking about their experiences with Landmark Forum. We'd also like to thank our assistant producer, Nate Halda, for all the work he did in helping put this episode together, as well as our intern, Claudia Drace, for all her amazing interning work. We'd also like to thank our $15 tier Patreon donors who are honorary producers. They are Nancy Perone, Mistella Pena, Bonnie Mortensen, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Music in today's episode is brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions. To check out their collection of music, visit their website, sessions.blue. Thank you all so much. Without your support, all of this wouldn't be possible. If you'd like to become a donor, head over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast and choose your reward. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>